Do you love early intervention, but feel like you need more mentorship and information to thrive in this setting? We're here to provide a safe, inclusive community where we learn from and uplift one another. It's our mission to prepare students and practitioners to be confident and competent working in early intervention. Hi, I'm Amira Johnson. I'm Danielle DiLorenzo. And I'm Sarah Putt. And together, we're the real OTs of early intervention. Hey, Sarah, how are you feeling today? I'm doing great. How are you, Danielle? Tired, <laughs> but I'm doing okay. <laughs> How are you doing, Amira? I'm good. I'm also a little tired. I think it's the weather. It's, it's a stormy day here. So today we are going to be talking about self-injurious behaviors. We'll spend time talking about what exactly self-injurious behaviors are, what they look like, strategies for us as the therapists, but also how we can best empower our families. This episode is sponsored by Mornings with an OT Mom. My mission is to create a platform to empower, uplift, and educate other parents, students, professionals, and anyone else interested in all things OT, EI, schools, and everything else in between. If you would like to know more information, you can check out my website at www.danielledilorenzo.com. As a new graduate in EI, I was honestly completely unprepared for this topic. Parents would come to me frustrated, overwhelmed, and it's almost like they had this sense of just feeling hopeless, and I didn't know what to do. It's one of the areas I definitely had to spend a lot of time learning about, teaching myself about when I first started out. Danielle, you already know, I absolutely admire you as a therapist, as a mom, just as an overall human, and I know this topic is something that you're very, very passionate about, and I've learned a tremendous amount from you already, and you've spent so much time educating us about self-injurious behaviors and how you've navigated them as a parent. What makes you so passionate about this topic? I think there is a huge stigma related to self-injurious behaviors, especially with kiddos under the age of three. I have worked with young kids as early as 12, 13 months that were displaying self-injurious behaviors for over 20 years. It was literally what my entire caseload was when I was 18 to 25, starting out as a developmental interventionist. And there is so much emotion, misconception, and approaches that are not beneficial to maintain the integrity and dignity of the child and support what really is causing the self-injurious behavior. It was something that was extremely passionate to me throughout my entire career. And when my son sustained a traumatic birth injury and started engaging in self-injurious behaviors, it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to experience and provide support while making sure that I can keep it emotionally together. I'm even holding back tears as we talk now because it's very heavy for parents. And I now have a ton of empathy for previous parents that, you know, I get to leave. After I've provided strategies, I get to leave, but I don't get to leave in my own house because now I have a child. Thank goodness now that does not engage in as many severe self-injurious behaviors as he once did, but I understand what it's like to live it and not only provide support within my profession. So that's my drive. That's my why. It always has been. 
And then now both my personal and professional lives have collided, but it actually has strengthened me in so many ways, not just as a mother, but as a clinician as well. I like that you talked about the empathy you now have for the families, because I think that's something I couldn't relate to what they were going through. And I would say, well, just try this. And then I would leave and then I'd come back in two weeks and they were like, we tried it. It's not working. And I struggle with that because I knew what they were going through. And I could, like I said, see that just hopelessness. I mean, you're frustrated, you're upset, you can't figure out what's wrong. It's hard. It's really hard. And I want to just talk about what does that look like? What do those self-injurious behaviors look like? For me, the most common one was headbanging, but I know that there are many others. So can you just talk us through what are some of the other ones that you've experienced or that you've seen? So headbanging is a big one. Self-hitting, hitting in the face, pinching, self-pinching, biting, biting the hand, hitting, closed fist, open fist. It is any type of harm to the body and it can look very different. With Luke, he was a headbanger. And then once we started working on the headbanging behaviors, it kind of transitioned to self-slapping. And then once we worked on that, now he'll slap himself and then he'll look at you and he'll wait and he'll be like, okay, so now we're aware that we shouldn't be doing this. And I'll talk a little bit more about some of those strategies that really support that. But I think the hardest thing to do is to not react in a way that is going to show the child or your own child that this is going to be a way that you can get my attention. And this is a way that you can express yourself. And I think it's important from a very early age to always treat the child as if they understand you with your words and your actions, because even if they're not ready to accept what you're saying, they are hearing it over and over again, especially when they are calm and organized, which then really supports in that moment using strategies that are more from a sensory mindfulness-based approach than one of compliance in a sense, because the goal of course is to get the child to not engage in self-injurious behaviors But to be able to do that, you need to find a way for that child to express themselves. And the stem of that typically comes from a decreased ability to communicate their wants and needs. And that's where you see this big, well, if they can talk, they wouldn't be upset. And as a parent, I can tell you, my kid was upset because he understood the world around him and nobody understood him. And he knew if he ran up against a wall and banged on that wall, he would show me that he was angry before he could tell me he was angry. And as a mom, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, you can't start doing this. Like, this is going to be so hard for me. Like, and I kind of had to take a step back because it's very easy as a professional to have that mindset of like, I know what I need to do in these moments of times. But as a mom, there's so much emotion fired behind that, that I remember reacting to the first time he did it. And then that was it. Like, then he started headbanging and headbanging more and more. But it wasn't until I was utilizing a preventative and mindful approach and was able to facilitate ways to help him communicate that we saw a very big decrease in the self-injurious behaviors. I like that you mentioned the awareness piece because one of the more difficult 
experiences that I've gone through is when a kiddo, they kind of start doing some sort of self-injurious behavior, but then all of a sudden they realize that they're not getting what they want. They're not getting the feedback. They're not communicating what it is that they want, or they're not getting the response from their parent or caregiver that they want. And all of a sudden they start seeking out other ways and potentially worse or more harmful ways to do it. And I remember one kiddo that she used to headbang and we as the team and myself with the parents, we're like, all right, we're just going to make sure we have lots of mats and lots of pillows and she'll be in a safe space. So if she does it, she can do it on the mat and it's perfectly fine. But when she realized that she wasn't getting the response that she wanted, she would literally go to the next hardest thing in her space and would just start slamming her head on that. And all of a sudden I'm just like, wow, uh, I tried this strategy and it has completely backfired. So I think that that awareness piece, I love that you said that, Danielle, because these kiddos are smart and they know what they're doing and they're doing it for a reason. So I'm really glad that you brought that and, and really kind of tied that in there because it's not just they're doing it kind of willy-nilly and for no apparent reason. There are specific reasons that they're doing these behaviors. And you also bring up the fact of consistency. I think so often, even me, I wanted a quick fix. I wanted to be able to just implement a strategy for a couple of days and then Luke would never headbang again. And I need everyone to know that I'm still providing therapy strategies every day to support his sensory need to decrease those self-injurious behaviors, those communicative strategies to help him express his wants and needs more appropriately. And when I'm talking consistency, I mean, I've started since he was 12, 13 months old when I knew that he was, you know, headbanging. He used to headbang to self-soothe, which is actually developmentally appropriate, which can be confusing. And also it's like people tell you, doctors like, oh, it's normal. Kids will do that. But for me, I remember Chris saying, oh my gosh, you called this when he was six months old. I said, it's just something I've seen. I've seen that kiddos that have a language barrier and they cannot express their wants and needs and they are prone to you know, rocking or self-soothing or banging their head. That could be an indicator that they would headbang when they're frustrated. And I remember... I started teaching breathing to Luke and he would punch me in the face. He would slap me. He knew that if he were to breathe, he would calm and he didn't want to calm. He wanted to show me he was upset. So when I started honoring and saying, I know you're upset, baby. I know you're sad. I know you're mad. I know you can't tell me, but you can't hit me. You can't hit yourself. We love you. We can't let you do that. Like we have to keep you safe. And that's a really hard moment for a parent to use that kind of language in that high intense moment because you're watching your kid hit yourself. You're, you've just got punched in the face. I'm sorry. I don't care if it's your own kid, someone else's kid. It, it elicits a response within you of like, oh my goodness, like, don't react. Keep doing what you're doing because that's the moment where you can see the brain changing. You can see all the preventative strategies that you've been implementing. Now it's your time to execute that. So I remember so vividly, it was months of just breathing and breathing. And then around this 19 month mark, all of a sudden when I was like, okay, I'm just going to breathe. I don't even talk. 
Luke started breathing and Luke started calming. And then once we introduced PECS and AAC, which I will say it again in early intervention, I'm not sure what the policies are. It's very different from state to state, but utilizing a picture exchange communication of any type or figuring out other ways to help kiddos express themselves is key because it goes hand in hand with self-injurious behaviors. I'm living it. I see it amongst a lot of my students. And I think that it is important to always have that together when creating interventions and supports in helping our families work on decreasing those self-injurious behaviors. You've given some great strategies already for working with the kids. And I know for me, when I was looking into the topic before I knew you, Danielle, I read a lot about how to support the kid and you had to know what the triggers were. And I know you said a couple as far as wanting to express something. So those communication delays, I also read a lot about sensory seeking behaviors. And so those were the strategies that I tried. But what I want to spend a little bit more time talking about is how can we support the parents? Because that's the part that I struggle with the most is what can I tell the parents to do in that moment when they're, yes, they've tried the strategies, but how can we help our families when they're going through this? Because like you're saying, it's, it's tough, it's hard. And They're trying the strategies with the kid, but I just want to know a little bit more about how we can support our families too. And with that being said, Amira, I think one of the other challenges that I've faced in dealing with self-injurious behaviors is that a lot of times once we start some sort of intervention or strategy, I have seen that the behaviors will get worse before they actually get better. It's so easy for us as practitioners to just be like, it's going to get worse, but it's okay. Hang on, you can do it. But really, how can we support the families, the caregivers throughout this time through starting, trying to figure out what the strategies are, what's going to work, and then also managing when it does get worse before we get to that better point. All of these are amazing points to bring up. And I will tell you that where we should all start as early intervention practitioners is empowering and educating the parent that they can do this because a lot of times they think that they can't. And what we have to do is you have to set it up from the very beginning that this is not going to be fixed in a week, in two weeks. You have to let go of timeframes. People want a definite, they want an end date. They want to say, if I do this X amount of times, this will be this. And that's not how this type of trajectory works when you're trying to decrease self-injurious behaviors. It will get worse before it gets better. And you have to prep the parent for that. You have to front load them with, you are going to see a level of aggression that you might not have ever seen before. But I'm telling you this now. So when it happens, you will be prepared no matter what state you're in from an emotional perspective. And I'm going to teach you the tools now. We always talk about teaching our kids the tools when they're calm. We have to teach the parents the tools when they are calm. I write down a little like journal, a little questionnaire as to how everybody can work with their own child because each strategy that you provide is going to be very different because you might have two kiddos that are engaging in the same self-injurious behavior, but that want and that drive as to why they're engaging in that behavior might be different. Therefore, that strategy might not work as effectively from one kid to the next because it's some type of sensory deprivation. It's some type of communicative breakdown. It is transitioning from a preferred activity and not being able to express that you're sad about it. There are so many things that go into it. What is also helpful for parents is to know that there is a reason behind it and they are not at fault. They are not a bad parent. They are not doing anything wrong. There are just different approaches to working with their child that 
will elicit a different response. So for example, I'm pretty loud and so is my son. And what I noticed was not yelling, but my voice got louder when I would try to interject or say, oh, we don't hurt ourselves. And when I got louder, he would engage in self-interest behaviors more. So what I started to do was lower my voice. Oh, you seem so upset. I am upset. That's what he'd say. I'm upset. I'm tired. And like, you know, and we've worked on that. Tell parents that they are a therapeutic agent. Empower them and let them know that they are the anchor that can support their child in this sea of unregulated emotions. It is such an empowering experience for the parent to know that they are in control of how they present themselves and can literally alter the sensory regulation of their child. And that's what we can do as early intervention practitioners. We can show them how to use themselves as a therapeutic agent for change. I think needless to say, this topic is something that is so important to talk about and a lot of times isn't talked about enough. Another one of the big difficulties that I have found in working with the kiddos or at least hearing from the parents if maybe I'm not there with them is the difference between navigating self-injurious behaviors when you're at home, when you're in your safe space, when there's nobody else around and you really feel like you can take the strategies to heart and really focus on you and, and the child. But a big difficulty arises when you're in public and there are other people watching that don't know you. They don't know your story. They don't know what's going through your mind. Maybe they're blaming you as a parent. Maybe they think your kid is spoiled, What you know, whatever the reason is. But there's such a higher level of difficulty of navigating these behaviors in public. And Danielle, I'd really like to hear your experience and kind of your perspective of being a parent, but also a practitioner in navigating the differences between addressing self-injurious behaviors in the home versus out in public. When Luke was 17 months old, that's when his headbanging was at an all-time high. And I remember thinking, oh, we're still going out in public. We're going. And we went out and he went to slam his head on the concrete floor. And he would have just thrown himself on the ground if I didn't block him. And I just remember all these people staring at me. And no one helped me. They just stared at me. I got him in the car and we went home. And we stayed in for about four to five months afterwards because I didn't feel safe to bring Luke out in the environment. And I'm going to tell you, there are times where that might have to be the best solution at first is you're going to have to work in the home about all these preventative strategies that you can then implement out. So really as a practitioner, you have to analyze how safe the parent can keep the child out in the environment outside of their home and then determine an appropriate transition plan into bringing that child back out into the environment and utilizing and implementing those strategies. And I remember after I felt confident enough in implementing these strategies out in public, when I stopped really caring what other people were thinking, things that I had been preaching to other parents and doing in sessions my whole life, now I felt that everybody's looking at me, I can't control my child, and I'm afraid he's going to get hurt. So I took him out to the park, and I remember it was time to go. And he wouldn't go and he started kicking and hitting me and I had to pick him up and say, I have to keep you safe. I'm sorry. And there was a group of moms walking by and they watched Luke kick me in the face, knock my glasses off, scream. And they stared at me like I was the worst mother in the world. And I looked at them and I was like, does anybody want to help me rather than stare at me? Do you have a better solution to what you can do right now? Because I'm all ears and they all walked away. They quickly turned around with their babies, 
all nice and in control of their bodies and just walked away. And I think that is a perfect example to come back around to why I say self-injurious behaviors is a stigma and we need to be more open-minded. There's a lot of mom shaming that goes on and it really needs to stop because imagine if that group stopped and they were all like, do you need help? You're doing a great job. You look really tired. You're doing great. If I heard that, I think that that would have been a little bit more helpful in that moment. But see, you're not always going to get that. So when you're going to take your kids out of the home, you have to make sure that you're going to be ready to implement the strategies that you know might not look normal to everybody else, but they're perfect for you. And you have to be mindful of that. And that as a professional, you can have your sessions out at the park. You can have your sessions out at the store. You can be that voice. I've been that voice. I've done that for parents. I've given them the confidence to then implement these strategies out in public. It looks very different. But I promise you, if you approach it where you're just like, I can't let you hurt yourself. We have to get up, sweetie. I know you're upset right now. I know you really, really wanted that. It doesn't matter what the child is doing. It doesn't matter how bad you think it looks to other people. Focus on your child. Focus on utilizing those strategies in the movement because it's your life. You have to be able to manage your kid when you're out. And they should be able to. This is your natural environment. These are your occupations that you engage in every day. You have to be able to figure out strategies that are going to work and support your child. And that's how you as a therapist can really empower the parent and just say, focus on your baby. Focus on what we're teaching you. Focus on what you know you need to do. Don't worry about what it looks like. You're the only person that has to live your life. Not everybody else that you see, not strangers that you're never going to see again, not anybody else, just you and your baby. And that is how you will make progress and be able to see that carryover from home within outside environments. Danielle, earlier you said something that really hit home for me. You said, we are empowering the parents and telling them they can do this. They can get through this. And we, as a therapist, are there to help give them the tools and the strategies to do that. We're there for the kiddos, of course, but we're also here for these parents. And I think that's the perspective you brought today. And that's the perspective that will help us grow as therapists in this setting. And that's really what early intervention is all about. This is why we do what we do, to empower parents and to empower our families and to help our kids. So I just want to personally thank you for your perspective and your insight and for teaching me so much, so much about this. So today we talked all about self-induced behaviors and how to support our families as they navigate it. We talked about how to use a sensory-based and mindful approach that can best empower us as therapists, our families, and all of our beautiful kiddos. This is a topic that we are all still learning about, and we'd love to hear from you and our community. What types of strategies have you used to support your families as they navigate self-induced behaviors? Let us know by reaching out on Instagram at therealotsatei or our website, therealotees.com. Now that you've just heard us talk all about self-injurious behaviors and how we can be more supportive as therapists, I am so excited to announce that on February 3rd at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, I will be hosting a class via Zoom called A Mindful Approach to Self-Injurious Behaviors. If you are looking for alternative strategies and supports to help kiddos that engage in self-injurious behaviors and their families to be able to provide them with the tools to equip them to support their child's self-regulation, this is the class for you. The cost of the class is $10. You can reach out to me on Instagram by sending me a DM to at mornings with an OT mom, and I can help you get registered for the class. We hope to see you there. 
We're so excited you joined us today. Check out our website, therealots.com, for more information about anything discussed in the episode. And sign up for our email list so you don't miss out on any of our awesome EI resources. And join our amazing community of students and practitioners to get your questions answered and learn from others working in early intervention. Whether you're in the car, on your lunch break, or signing in to your next virtual session, thanks for keeping it real with the real OTs of early intervention. 